1990 movie, Joe versus the Volcano. Anybody remember seeing that like 30 years ago? It's a great movie, surprisingly good movie. It tells the story of Joe Banks, an everyman working a dead-end job at a medical supply company. Alongside hundreds of other zombie employees, he toils under flickering fluorescent lights, working for an unsympathetic boss, uh, producing a product that doesn't really do anything for anybody. And this career is slowly sucking the life out of him, day after day after day after day. In this opening scene, you can, if you were watching, you, you could tell, you notice that he uh, accidentally tears the bottom of his shoe on his way into the office one morning. He gets to his desk to fix his shoe, and one of his coworkers comes up to him and asks what happens. And he responds, I seem to have lost my soul. Many of you might be able to empathize with Joe's soul-crushing job. How many of us have been stuck in meaningless jobs with miserable conditions, terrible bosses, annoying coworkers, and no real purpose to what it is that we're doing? Now, in Joe's case, he is saved from his occupation when he learns from the doctor that he has six months to live. He quits his job, and he accepts an odd offer from a stranger to jump into an island volcano as a sacrifice on behalf of the natives. The movie gets a little strange at this point. Uh, the volcano actually rejects his sacrifice, however, and uh, the medical diagnosis turns out to be incorrect, so he lives happily ever after. Now, assuming that we will not be rescued from our boring jobs by a strange man inviting us to jump into a volcano, we are left to wonder, is there anything to rescue us from the monotony of our jobs? Are we destined to toil under flickering fluorescent lights, making rectal equipment forever? If not a volcano, what will save us from this boredom, this drudgery, this toil, this job? And if we cannot be so rescued, is there any way that we can at least make the most of our internment here on Earth? Well, that's actually what we're going to talk about during the next eight weeks. We're starting this morning a new message series here at Rooftop called Faith at Work. It's all about understanding our jobs from a, the perspective of Christian faith. We really like doing a Bible study here at Rooftop. As you might know, we just finished an 18-month-long detailed study of the Book of Romans. But every now and then, we just like talking about everyday issues that normal people like you and I deal with on a day-in, day-out basis. Uh, issues like uh, relationships and conflict and marriage and parenting and sex and work. Work is something that practically everybody alive has to do. Uh, if they knew what they were doing, our parents taught us this at an early age. They taught us the importance of hard work, getting a good job. I mean, we all remember uh, the day we got our first real job. My first real job was as a bagger at Deerberg's on Olive Road. Uh, many of us went to college so that we could hopefully do good at our jobs and maybe even get a better job. With the exception of sleep, most of us spend more time on the job than we spend performing any other single activity. More time than we spend with our kids, more time than we spend uh, at home, uh, more time that we spend at church. Work is the second most time-consuming thing that we do, and sleep doesn't really count because you're not conscious during it. And work is also demanding. Work-related pressures and stresses are responsible for millions of heart attacks and ulcers every year. 5% of the American workforce has to work multiple jobs just to make ends meet. The average American works a total of 11 jobs, 11 separate jobs, over the course of his or her lifetime. 
Work occupies us. It's why it's called an occupation. Work even defines us. After our name and where we live, and at least here in St. Louis, where you went to high school, people are more curious about what you do than anything else. Our jobs define who we are. I am a teacher. I am a salesperson. I am a doctor. Work is who we are. In ages past, people were named according to their occupation, right? Smith, Skinner, Baker, Miller, Spicer, Brewer, Mason. If you do enough research, there's oftentimes an occupation behind your name. I was a bit chagrined uh, to realize a few years ago that in an ancient German dialect, the word Herndon means male prostitute. <laughs> I'm just kidding, it doesn't. It means carnival clown. No, it doesn't mean that either. I have no idea what the name Herndon means. But I did look. <laughs> In the same way our ancestors had their jobs, like built into their names, oftentimes our, our work comes to define who we are as people. Work is an essential component to our lives. We deal with work-related questions more than we deal with almost any other type of question. You know, what should I do with my life? How do I work with my terrible coworkers? How do I work with my terrible boss? What if the work I do is unethical? When should I quit my job? These are questions we all ask. In fact, as I've talked with people over the years, work-related prayer requests are the most common kind of request I get. Next to prayers for grandma's hip, we have questions about work. God knows this. God knows that work is a critical part of our lives. He kind of set it up this way for a reason, which is what we're going to talk about. Which is why the Bible is filled with all sorts of divine wisdom on the topic of work. Work features very prominently in Scripture as a key component of the human experience. God has a lot to say about work so that we can do it well and experience work as he intended it. So if we want to be rescued from the drudgery of work, it's going to be from God's word given to us in Scripture and not from some strange man inviting us to jump into a volcano. So that's actually what we're going to talk about over the next eight weeks, what it means to think about our work from the perspective of the Christian faith. And this morning, I want to start by giving you all an oh-so-brief theology of work. Nothing else we talk about during this series will be as helpful as it should be if we don't first step back and consider what the Bible has to say about work from a theological perspective. And to do that, we need to go back to the very beginning. We need to go back to the Old Testament book of Genesis. Now, the book of Genesis is the first book in the Old Testament and in the Bible. It describes, at least the first few chapters, describe the creation of the universe, life, humanity, the earth, and in those opening few chapters of Genesis, we read about certain key moments which affect us to this day. We read about moments like the creation, moments like the fall, and another moment we're going to call the curse. For example, in the creation, it refers to the act of God in bringing forth the universe in its original perfection, in its early perfection, with man and woman, Adam and Eve, as the centerpiece of creation. In the Garden of Eden, 
Adam and Eve were cared for by God, assigned to care for the garden. That's the creation. The fall refers to the crime that Adam and Eve committed against God in disobeying him in the garden of Eden. God told Adam and Eve, hey, you can have fun in the garden, you can do whatever you want to do, you can eat whatever you want to eat, except this one thing, what, this one thing, do not do, what is it? Eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Yeah, don't do that. Uh, if, you don't, if you do that, you're going to die. The serpent, wily serpent, comes along and persuades them that, no, God's lying about that. You're not going to really die. And so he persuades them, and they willingly eat the fruit and disobey God in the process. And as a consequence, we have what theologians refer to as the curse. Now, the curse is the punishment God levies against Adam and Eve and, and the earth as a result of disobedience. Uh, Eve, for her part, will experience pain in childbirth. She will be ruled over by her husband, and Adam will have to work hard. That was the curse. As the author writes, cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken... For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Now the reason that I'm sharing this story from Genesis with you is because it's very, very relevant to our study of work. What we see in Genesis is the conception and the corruption of work. We see how God originally conceived of work. God created work. Importantly, at no point in the creation or after the creation of humanity was there not work in the garden. Work was a gift from God. The the garden was only a place of of leisure one day a week on the Sabbath. The rest of the days, there was work to do. There were trees to trim. There were plants to tend. There were animals to care for. There were naked bodies to take care of. I mean, if you're going to walk around naked in the garden, you've got to make sure you're working it to, to make sure you look good doing it. This was their assignment. Work it. After creating Adam and then eventually Eve as his work helper, the author writes, the, the Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. There was work in the garden. But this is the key. It was work as God originally intended it. It was fruitful work. It was productive work. It was enjoyable work. It was cooperative work. The work made them happy when they did it. We are very far from Eden, but even today, we do get glimmers of this sort of work. Every now and then, we experience work as God intended it. I mean, if you would, think of a a recent positive work experience. You might have to think really hard, but think of a, a, a recent positive work experience. Maybe it was just a great day at the office where things just actually worked out for you. In my case, maybe it's a sermon that comes together and you preach it and it actually helps people. Or maybe it's a counseling session where somebody actually gets helped after whatever it is comes out of my mouth. Uh, comes out of my mouth. Or it, I know there's a lot of teachers here this morning. Picture this. Picture this. Maybe, maybe this is what it looked like. Maybe you, at the beginning of the year, you and your co-teachers had to get together to put together a curriculum plan for the, for the year and you did that under the loving guidance of your administration, which is like key, right? And maybe you, the first day, got up in front of your students and delivered this lesson that you had worked hard on. And as you're delivering this lesson, the children out there, they are holding rapt attention. And they are taking notes. And you can see they are making connections. And they are learning things. And then they go home. 
And their, their parents ask them, what did you learn in school today? And the children actually have something to talk about with their parents. I learned this, I learned this, I learned this, I learned this. And then here's what happens. The parent calls you up and says, teacher, you are doing a wonderful job teaching my children. I don't know if that's ever happened for you teachers at all. This might require some imagination, but maybe part of that, maybe you've experienced like a tiny little bit of that. That's how God actually designed work to work. That was the plan. And we experience it in fleeting moments. But here's the key. That was supposed to be our everyday reality. But then, as we read in Genesis, work got corrupted. Work ceased to be work. Work became, in the words of the author of Genesis, work became something else. Work became toil. And toil is different than work. The author writes that because of human sin and corruption, what was intended to be fruitful work became hard, painful, never-ending, pointless toil. The ground became hard. It produced thorns. Farming it took sweat. Adam had to toil just to make enough food to eat, and then he died anyway. From dust you came to dust you will return. Now, the author of Genesis is describing the hard toil of agriculture here, but consider it a metaphor for the toil we've all known in life. I mean, just like your best work experience represents how God originally conceived of work, imagine your worst work experience ever. That represents the curse of toil. Now, I'm blessed. I've had a whole bunch of decent jobs over the course of my life. But, or more, or better. I don't consider this just a decent job. (laughs) Decent or better. Uh, But I've worked enough places to get a little glimpse of genuine sin-stained toil every now and then. For example, when I was in college, uh, when I came home on Christmas break, I would work as a temp just to make a few extra bucks here or there. And uh, one, sum- uh, one summer, one winter, I came home and uh, I got assigned to work at a coffee canning plant down in South City somewhere. And for this one day, they had this big machine that canned coffee. And this four-foot conveyor belt had broken down. And they needed someone to move the coffee cans from here to here. So that's what I did for eight Every now and then, I would use my left hand. (laughs) And then after a few moments, I'd return with my right hand. After eight hours, my arms were in pain, my knees and my ankles were sore, and my mind was ready to explode with boredom. And I realized, maybe for the first time in my life, that billions of people around the world do worse jobs for less money their whole lives. That's toil. And I realize this. Whenever we go down to Mexico on our mission trip, we send a group down to Mexico a couple times a year. I think we just welcomed a group back. Welcome back, guys. Uh, But while down in Mexico, we sometimes visit the dump. And the dump is an unregulated trash heap on the outskirts of town. Children are actually paid to sort through the trash for anything worth salvaging. In the colonia nearby, residents are sometimes employed against their will as drug mules to carry drugs across the border. 
or women and girls are forced into prostitution and sex slavery. These are extreme examples of toil, but they are real. They illustrate just how far we have deviated from God's original conception, his dream of work as life-giving and productive. Now, we might never have had to salvage in trash heaps, but we all know what toil feels like. We've all experienced how what God intended work to be has instead become corrupted. What God intended to be fruitful has become pointless. What God intended to be cooperative has become viciously competitive. What God intended to be life-giving has become soul-sucking. And this, this happens because of our depravity as sinners who have chosen in many, many ways, in big ways and little ways, together and alone, to disobey God. And as a result of millennia of sin piling up on top of itself, positive work experiences are now the rare exception. More often than not for us, it is toil. And the Bible actually acknowledges this. As the author of Ecclesiastes writes, Ecclesiastes is one of my favorite books in the Bible, he writes this, I hated life. Because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Very few things can make you hate life as much as boredom and frustration at work, right? So that's what we learned from Genesis. God's original concept of work has been corrupted by sin and its judgment. And I wanted to start here because it gives us some context uh, about which to think about our jobs and as we work our way through this series, what we are all feeling in fleeting moments of fruitfulness and the ugly moments of job frustration, it's part of an overarching story we read about in Scripture. We get frustrated at work because we're part of a story that we see playing out on the pages of the Bible and in our lives. Now, of course, our story does not end there. This is not the end of our story. The frustration of work would be a terrible reality to just have to accept Work sucks and then you die. That's your message for the morning. Good luck this week. Don't forget to tithe on your way out. No, the good news for us is that God is not so quick to give up on work as a centerpiece of his creation. In Genesis, we read about the creation, we read about the fall, we read about the curse, but here's the thing about the Bible. If you get confused in the Bible, here's the thing about the Bible. Keep reading. And if you keep reading in Scripture, you read about something else. You read about something known as the promise. And the promise is God's pledge to restore creation to its original design. The prophet Isaiah predicts a time in the future when God will restore earth to its original condition. Earth 2.0, you might call it. And just as the pre-fall garden was not a place of unrestrained leisure but productive labor, so will Earth 2.0 be a place of rewarding work as well. In a prophecy of the new heavens and the new earth, when God will return to dwell among us as he did in the garden, Isaiah writes these words that you may have actually heard before. He writes this, Behold, God says, I will create new heavens and a new earth, the former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. Just a second, pause right there. That verse is amazing. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. If you've ever wondered, am I going to remember in heaven how much my life sucked on earth? 
You won't. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create, for I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. My chosen ones will long enjoy the works of their hands. They will not toil in vain or bear children doomed to misfortune, for they will be people blessed by the Lord. So here Isaiah describes the new heavens, the new earth, as a place where the effects of the fall and the curse are undone. What does he say? God's people will again enjoy the work of their hands. Meaningless toil will be returned to productive work once again. You actually might be surprised to learn this, that we will have jobs in heaven. It's not just the worship team that will have jobs in heaven. We will all have jobs in heaven. I mean, the new heavens and the new earth, we will all have jobs. Our eternal future, the new heavens and the new earth, are actually described as a, a busy economy with a functioning population. Heaven and earth 2.0 will need artists and entrepreneurs and entertainers and leaders and bakers. I'm not so sure it will need firemen or police officers or doctors, because will we have fires, or crime, or illnesses? Don't really know. But if you're in one of those lines of work, I recommend picking up some new job skills that you think might be more helpful <laughs> in eternity. Maybe a harp tuning, or gold polishing, although will harps ever go out of tune in heaven? Hmm. Things that make you go, hmm. <laughs> will gold get smudgy in heaven? Wow, that's a deep one later. So I don't mean to be cheeky here, but scripture really does describe eternity as a place where work is restored to its original concept. God is that committed to giving us the chance to enjoy what he wanted us to, work and labor as he intended it. The, the way I've sort of chosen to think about this, for right or wrong, is that heaven is a place where we will all get to do our dream jobs. Everybody's got a dream job, right? A dream job is that job where you get to do what you are uniquely gifted at in a way that improves the world for the better and in a way that pays you to do it, which is oftentimes a, the missing component. <laughs> Your dream job is what you are uniquely gifted at doing uh, in a way that improves the world for the better and in a way that, that you get paid to do it. That's your dream job. Very few of us on earth ever actually get the chance to do our dream jobs here on earth. In fact, quick survey of your hands. How many of you are like currently in your dream job right now? And I don't mean like a, a good job that you really like. No, your dream job, like what you have dreamed of doing. One, two, three, four. Congratulations to you guys. We are insanely jealous of you and we, we, want, we want to kill you. Uh, <laughs> Very few of us ever get to do your dream job uh, here on earth. Uh, very few of us even know, we don't even give ourselves permission to dream of what our job even, of our dream job even is. I mean, I know exactly what my dream job is. Uh, by the way, I love being a pastor, by the way. So I'm thinking like even dreamier than that. Uh, but very few of us give ourselves permission to dream what that is. My dream job is sort of a, in heaven, sort of a bivocational dream, bivocational job. I would love to be a professional baseball player and book critic. If I could, if there's, a, if there's a way I could get paid to play professional baseball and uh, read and review books, that's not going to happen here on earth. 
That's my wife cackling at me. <laughs> Matt, you're being so unrealistic again. <laughs> That's not going to happen here on earth. Probably not for you too. Finding your dream job is actually rare. I saw a survey on LinkedIn that uh, 30% of people who took the survey ever really get the chance to do their dream jobs. 30%. And to be clear, that's 30% of people on LinkedIn who took the survey. So how many people in reality ever really get to do uh, their dream jobs? And I know a lot of people who like get to their dream job and they're even, not even really that satisfied when they get there. Uh, for example, one of the most common dream jobs among American men is airline pilot. So many little boys grow up wanting to be an airline pilot. I actually know two airline pilots who go to rooftop. Both of them, not too excited about their jobs anymore. <laughs> it wore off a long time ago. Very few people land their dream job, and those who do admit to being kind of disappointed, which should make the promise of heaven all the more alluring. Imagine landing your dream job in the new heavens and the new earth and not being disappointed. That's the promise. That's what God is promising us. He loves us too much to let us never experience the joy of using our bodies and minds to serve him and others well. He created us to be workers and to find reward in it. And he's not going to give up on that dream too easily. Or at all. In fact, not only is God committed to helping us realize that dream of productive, cooperative, rewarding work, he's committed to something more. He's committed to helping us experience that today here on earth. We won't necessarily experience the fullness of God's heavenly promise here on earth, but he promises to at least give us a foretaste here. God promises to bless us here on earth as workers at whatever it is we do. Uh, teachers, nurses, business people, managers, laborers, salespeople, Uber drivers, pilots, retail workers. Whatever we do here on earth, God wants to bless. As Paul writes in Colossians, we pray that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work. And to the Corinthians, God is able, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. Basically, God promises to eventually give you your dream job in the new heavens and the new earth, but he also promises to make your work here on earth at least a little dreamier so that you can, as Paul says, abound at work. Now, that's not going to happen easily, and it's going to take prayer and courage and maybe even some tough choices. That's what we're going to talk about over the course of this series. How can God help you abound at work? And that, frankly, might seem impossible to you currently, you might hate your job so much that you cannot imagine God blessing it so that it is a joy. Can anybody here just not even imagine learning to love what they do? But God is able, right? And if he can raise a dead man to life again, he can help you learn to love what you do. And speaking of dead men raising from the dead and becoming alive, I do need to point out something important before we wrap up. I need to point out that God's plan to restore our fallen creation to its original improved condition did come at a cost. As a result of an Adam and Eve's sin, and ours as well, we all stand guilty before God. As guilty sinners, here's the truth, as guilty sinners, we do not deserve the new heavens and the new earth. 
As guilty sinners, we do not deserve our dream job. It's not like we can die, show up in heaven, and say, hey, where's my dream job? God's going to be like, well, you're woefully underqualified for that. And if we're being honest with ourselves, work reveals us as sinners more than a few other things do. If we're being honest with ourselves, our misery at work is as much our fault as it is anybody's. We create a lot of the problems that we face at work, right? If we don't get along with our coworkers, that's at least a slightly good chance that it's because we are actually hard to get along with. If we have a hard time working for our boss, it's at least partly because we might have a hard time working for people. If we uh, aren't really excited about what we do, it might be, at least in part, because we have a bad attitude. I mean, if I'm having a really bad day or week at, at, at the office here at church, oftentimes I am directly responsible for that. If work is misery for us, it's at least partly because we are miserable people. We are sinners. We made it that way. Not entirely, of course, and not all of us. I mean, slaves don't choose to be slaves. Child soldiers don't choose to be child soldiers. But we are all sinners, and work exposes us as such. And in order for God's promise of restoration to be realized, some work had to be done to address the matter of our sin and guilt, which is why Jesus came to earth. In order for the curse to be undone, in order for the promise to have a chance, God had to come to earth to address the matter of our sin, which he did. He came to earth as a man and volunteered his life on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins. Only then could he be raised from the dead. Jesus had to die for our sins first. And talk about hard jobs. I mean, you think you had a hard job. Imagine dying for the sins of humanity. Jesus had one job. He had one job. It was the hardest job in the history of jobs. He had to come to earth to die for sins so he could be forgiven our crimes, and he did it. As Jesus prays to the Father in the Gospel of John, I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you've given me to do. The work God sent Jesus to earth to do, the job nobody else could have or would have wanted to do, was to die on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins so that we could be forgiven. And interestingly, interestingly, Jesus says that the most important work that we could ever do on earth is to believe in that message. That's our real job here on earth, to believe in the sacrifice of Jesus for our sins. As Jesus said, the work of God is this, to believe in the one that he has sent. More important than our work as jo- uh, than our jobs as teachers, more important than our jobs as laborers, more important than our jobs as parents or preachers or retail workers, our job, our real job, is to believe in Jesus as the one God sent to die for sins. That's our job. This is important, especially as we begin our series. I mean, God really does want to give you your dream job in heaven. He really does want to give you access to his power and wisdom on earth so that you can learn to enjoy serving him in your job. But that can only happen if you receive forgiveness for your sin. That's the first item of business. That's the first job that we got to check off our list. Be forgiven of all the sins we've committed in life, which make us, our bosses, our coworkers, our clients miserable. The work of God is to believe that Jesus took care of our sins so that we could be forgiven and freed. Is that something you've done? Have you been forgiven of your sins on the job? Do you even believe that you're a sinner? Is that not something you're convinced of? If you're not so sure that you're a sinner, here's an assignment for you. 
Tomorrow morning when you show up to work or whenever you go back to work, ask your boss and coworkers, hey, my preacher gave me an assignment. Do you guys think I'm a sinner? Come back next week, next week, tell me what they say. God wants to bless you with the promise of fruitful, cooperative, joyful work in heaven on earth. But first you must be forgiven. First you must be saved, not from a volcano, but from sin. And in Jesus Christ you can be. And if you are, you cannot imagine, you cannot imagine the dream job that our Father has lined up for us in the new heavens and the new earth and the power and the wisdom he wants to make available to you here on earth to do your best at what he's called you to do. So let's pray. And we're going to talk next week about the matter of calling. How do you know that you're doing what God has called you to do? Let's pray. Father, thank you for work. We thank you for giving us hands to work, hands to type, and to hold little hands in classrooms and hands to hold bandages on legs that are bleeding and hands to play piano keys and strum guitars. Thank you for giving us brains, brains to solve tough problems at the office and in the world. You've created us to be workers. Uh, But as we are sinners, our work has been corrupted as well and our work has become toil. Thank you for the chance to return to the teaching of Scripture, which reminds us why that is. It's because we are sinners. We're depraved. We're living in a universe slightly off from what you had in mind. Our bad days at the office are not just bad days at the office. They are echoes of Eden, echoes of the fall. And they remind us They remind us that we need to be forgiven and that there is a promise for those of us who are a promised to enjoy work as you intended it. So I pray that you bless us as your workers. The work that you've given us to do, it's not just in classrooms and in offices and in labs. More fundamentally, the work is to believe in the one that you have sent. Jesus, your son, our Messiah. I pray that you bless our series that can be helpful to people who want to be better workers. And we know that it starts with your grace, as all things do. I pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, by the power of your Holy Spirit.